RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Allie Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 4, The Double Event You Would Say Anything But Your Prayers 30th September, 1888 with two murders committed in the space of a week, at the beginning of September 1888, the terror levels of the East End are cranked up several notches. Still known as the Whitechapel Fiend at this stage, or Leather Apron, despite John Pizer's undoubted innocence, the very mention of the murderer sent the unfortunates of the district into shudders, or angered enough people to call for direct action on anyone who they considered a suspect. For their part, the police were fighting battles on two fronts. Firstly, they had to deal with a man who killed at random before disappearing into thin air, Violence was a daily occurrence in Whitechapel, but a man who ripped bodies to shreds for the sheer sake of it was something new. No one saw anyone leave the murder sites of Buckshrow or Hanbury Street, and Pizer and Isaac Smith aside, there was no obvious suspect. The second front consisted of overwhelming local and media criticism. The Abilene and Thicks of the world were largely excused, but the Home Secretary, along with Sir Charles Warren, the Commissioner of Police, were vilified by all quarters. Thousands of column inches lambasted the men for failing to offer a reward for the capture of the murderer, though it was unlikely that this would have done any good, as the man clearly acted alone. Warren was also in favour of a level of vigilantism, and thus revealed how out of touch he was with his own force, as his men on the street didn't welcome public help. There were already shots of leather apron from prostitutes who thought their clients were underpaying, or who simply saw an opportunity to extort them. Anyone foreign, by which we mean Jewish, or suspicious, were only a cry away from being lynched. The lack of arrest became a source of embarrassment for the police and the government. Nearly a century later, during the Yorkshire Ripper investigation, local forces bristled at the very suggestion that Scotland Yard would be called in when they too drew a blank. One man stated, they haven't caught their own yet. The radical newspapers, who had already played their part in inciting the riots of Trafalgar Square a year earlier, wasted little opportunity to use the killings to further their own causes. The more mainstream press, though not as vociferous, pointed out police deficiencies wherever possible. A week after the Chapman murder, the Pall Mall Gazette wrote, A week has now passed since the last of the Whitechapel murders took place. During that period, there has been something more than the customary show of police activity. The coroner has done as much as it lies in the power of a coroner to do to probe the mystery, yet not the smallest approach appears to have been made towards the apprehension of the criminal, or even towards an elucidation of the circumstances of the crime. No trustworthy clue has been obtained, and the only issue of the exertions made is to lessen whatever hope was at first entertained, and the terrible secret might somehow be brought to light. We assume that the police have done their best, and we are far from charging them with incapacity because their best amounts only to failure. They have not arrested any man against whom a reasonable prima facie case could be made out but they have arrested more than one whom there never was the faintest warrant for suspecting. We are entitled to express our surprise that the police have pounced on persons who are plainly innocent. That they have not succeeded in arresting the culprit is a pity, 
but they have been energetic in the wrong direction is distinctly a reproach. There is a worse thing than doing nothing, that is, doing something that ought not to be done. The East End and the police could do little but await the next murder and hope for a blunder. Many had noted that the man struck at weekends, and speculated that his work must have kept him away from the East End, and his hobby. However, the 15th and then the 22nd of September passed without incident. In that time, the cases against both Pizer and Eisenschmidt were dismissed, and the inquest of the Nichols and Chapman murders concluded. Just as things were slowly getting back to normal in London, though not in the affected area, the Central News Agency received an anonymous letter. We'll come to look at this later, but suffice to say, the signature of that letter brought the murderers back into focus. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. There it was, the catchiest name for the murderer yet, Jack the Ripper. Jack was a common enough term back then, and described men by their jobs. But Ripper, how beautifully summed up. Far better than being named the Fiend or after a piece of clothing. The press loved it but the man himself had been unusually quiet. This did little to quell the East End panic. On the Thursday the 26th of September 1888, the philanthropist and benefactor, Dr Thomas Bernardo, a regular visitor to the common lodging houses of Spitalfields, came to talk to the local women who were at threat. Though this side of his life saw him work as a pastor, he was a doctor first and foremost. He was inevitably listed as suspect, though he was far too old and looked nothing like anyone suggested in the witness reports. Upon his recent trip, he wrote to the Times... I found the women and girls thoroughly frightened by the recent murders. One poor creature, who had apparently been drinking, cried bitterly, We're all up to no good and no one cares what becomes of us. Perhaps some of us will be killed next. While in the lodging house kitchen at 32 Flower and Dean Street on Commercial Street, he spoke to several women, one of which was a Swedish woman called Elizabeth Stride. Long Liz, she was five feet five, which is certainly tall for a woman at the time, was born Elizabeth Gustaf Dotter at Stora Tumelhead Farm, in Torslanda near Gothenburg, Sweden, November 27, 1843, to Gustav Eriksson and Beta Karlsdotter. Her early years are fairly nondescript. She became a domestic servant in Gothenburg shortly before her 17th birthday, but either the wages were not enough or something else happened over the next three years, as by 1865 she was registered by the Gothenburg police as a prostitute. It was also around this time that she gave birth to a stillborn girl. This may have been due to a venereal disease, as records suggest she was treated at the time. In 1866 she moved to London and registered at the Swedish church in Prince's Square in St George's in the East, an area to the south of Commercial Road. Notes Commercial Road, not Commercial Street. On the 7th of March 1869, Elizabeth married John Stride at St Giles in the Fields. He ran a coffee shop, where of course alcohol was sold. The couple moved in and around the Poplar district for the next eight years or so, but the marriage seems to have broken down come 1877. In the March of that year, she is recorded at being at the Poplar Workhouse. It's largely suspected that alcohol was a factor. On the 3rd of September 1878, a full decade before the murders, the SS Princess Alice, a passenger steamer, was making a return journey from Gravesend up the Thames to Swan Pier near London Bridge, when it collided with the much larger SS Bywell on the starboard side. The smaller vessel split in two and sank in four minutes. An hour before the clash, 75 million imperial gallons of raw sewage were released into the Thames at Barking and Crossness, meaning that many of the deaths were due to poisoning as much as drowning. Over 650 people perished in the disaster. Elizabeth claimed that her husband and two of her children died on board. This was an outright lie, as John Stride actually died of heart failure six years later, and she had no children. It's likely that she used this as a hard luck story to elicit money from the Swedish church or anyone who would listen. Desperate times, after all, 
call for desperate measures. By 1882, she was living at 32 Flourendine Street, where she would later meet Dr. Bernardo. She met a waterside labourer, Michael Kidney, in 1885, and they began a tempestuous relationship. They moved to Devonshire Street, which is now Bancroft Road, in 1887, but were far from happy, and their both being heavy drinkers didn't help. In April 1887, she had Kidney arrested for assault, though she did not appear in court to testify against him. If Kidney was known for roughhousing, Stride herself was certainly not shy of public disorder, being arrested for drunkenness eight or nine times, eight under her own name, and one possibly under a pseudonym of Annie Fitzgerald. The day before meeting Bernardo, Elizabeth left Kidney, apparently for good, and returned to Flower and Dean Street, having not been there for three months. She would tell people that she was now in domestic service for various Jewish families in the area. She certainly spoke Yiddish, which would have been an advantage over most domestic staff. On the afternoon of Saturday the 29th of September, she was paid 6D by Mrs Tanner, the lodging housekeeper, for cleaning two rooms. Later that day, she asked a man called Charles Preston if she could borrow his clothes brush, but he couldn't find it. She was heading out to the Queen's Head pub on the corner of Commercial Street and Fashion Street with Mrs Tanner and wanted to tidy herself up. She then returned to Flower and Dean Street an hour later, before heading out again. She still had the 6D, which she'd been paid earlier. Little is known for her whereabouts for the next few hours, but come 11pm, she was in the Bricklayer's Arms on Settle Street, a long-since-lost pub and a little bit off the beaten track for a Spitalfields resident. Two men, John Gardner and a Mr J Best, saw her leaving with a man of about the same height, who had a black moustache, weak sandy eyelashes, and he wore a morning suit and a billycock hat. The couple had been kissing and cuddling all night. They teased her that the man was leather apron, but were good-natured to the extent that they offered to buy the man a drink. He refused, and the pair headed towards Commercial Road, in the direction of Burner Street. Burner Street is now called Enrique Street, after the philanthropist Basil Enrique, who opened up several boys' clubs for the poor Jewish residents. In 1888, it consisted of a collection of cottages on the west side, and, near the junction of Fairclough Street, a small gateway at 40 Burner Street, called Duckfields Yard. On the corner of Burner Street and Fairclough Street, stood the Nelson Pub, while next door, a man called Matthew Packer would sell fruit through his window. Then came another cottage, and then the gates of Duckfield Yard. It was also possible to use Duckfield Yards to reach the International Working Men's Educational Club, which sat adjacent. This was a meeting place for local Jews, where they could listen to lectures or take part in debates. A good deal of drinking and singing would also take place. Between 11.30 and 11.45, 90 or so people began to leave the building after hearing a lecture on why Jews should be socialists, which was presided over by a Mr Morris Eagle. About 30 or so stayed and continued with their conversation and songs. It was around this time that the resident of 64 Burner Street, William Marshall, claimed he saw Elizabeth talking to a man. They were canoodling, but as they passed Marshall, he got a good look at him. The man was five foot six inches, stout, middle-aged, had an English accent, mild speech, wore dark pants, peaked sailor-like cap, short black cutaway coat, was probably clean-shaven, decent appearance. The only thing he could hear the man say to her was, You'll say anything but your prayers. Which is either an amusing put-down, or rather sinister. Around 12.30, PC Smith of the Metropolitan Police, whose beat took him into Burner Street, saw Elizabeth and a man talking quietly. The description he gave was similar to Marshall's. Yes, I noticed he had a newspaper parcel in his hand. He was about 18 inches in length and 6 inches or 8 inches in width. He was about 5 foot 7 inches, as near as I could say. 
He had on a hard felt deerstalker out of dark colour and dark clothes. A deerstalker is only a flap away at the back from being a peaked hat. At 12.45, another man, James Brown, saw a couple on the corner of Burner Street and Fairclough, i.e. a few feet north of where William Marshall had seen the couple. He heard the woman say, No, not tonight. Maybe some other night. The man was five foot seven inches, average build, not so very stout, and wore a long coat, almost down to his heels. Of course, this could have been a different couple altogether. A few minutes earlier, Mrs Fanny Mortimer, who lived two doors away from the club and the entrance of Duckfield's yard, heard the... The measured heavy stamp of a policeman. ...pass her house, though she never saw him. When she went outside, she saw a man carrying a shiny black bag. The archetypal bag for Jack the Ripper. Actually, this is one of the myths of the case. Most film adaptations of the murders picture a man in a top hat and cape, carrying a black bag, no doubt containing an array of knives and surgical instruments. The bag motif began here with Mrs Mortimer in Burner Street. In reality, the truth is more prosaic. A few days later, a man called Leon Goldstein called in at Lehman Street Police Station and identified himself as Mrs Mortimer's suspicious man. He'd been walking from nearby Spectacle Alley to his home in 22 Christian Street. He was indeed carrying a bag, but it contained nothing more than empty cigarette boxes. As you can see, there was plenty going on in Burner Street as Saturday night became Sunday morning. Liz had been seen with a man, and if it was the same couple Brown saw, had been kissing him and then denied him anything more. But it is the next man who is the star witness of the entire ten-week period. Israel Swartz, a Hungarian Jew who had not been in the country for long, walked south down Burner Street at around 12.45am. He saw a man stop and speak to Stride, who was at that point in the gateway of Duckfield's yard. The man either tried to pull the woman into the street, or push her into the passage. Accounts vary as his statement is second-hand, and was possibly dramatised by the press. Whereupon she... Uh, screamed uh, three times, but not very loudly. It seems nonsensical that she should be attacked by a man this way, and then murdered by another. This man was her murderer. Uh, he was uh, five foot five inches tall, thirty years old, broad shoulder. Fair complexion, small brown moustache, dark pants, black cap with a peak, dark jacket, brown hair. Schwartz took this to be nothing more than a domestic incident, and wanted nothing more to do with it, so he crossed the road. It was then that he noticed a second man, who was lighting a pipe, and also on the other side of the street. He was uh, 5 feet 11 inches, uh, 35 years old, fresh complexion, light brown hair, dark overcoat, an old black hard-felt hat with a wide brim, and a clay pipe in his hand. The first man called Lipsky, but it's unclear at whom. Schwartz spoke no English, but given the tone and situation, he decided to hurry away. He noticed that the second man had begun to follow him, so he ran off in a southerly direction. This second man ran too, though Schwartz could not say if he was being chased, or if the man with the pipe was being chased too. In any case, Schwartz ran as far as the railway arch, but the man didn't run so far. The term Lipsky was pejorative, and one peculiar to the East End. The origin of the insult was found very close to Burner Street, in the very next street in fact, for in April 1887, a local umbrella stick salesman called Israel Lipsky murdered a pregnant woman, Miriam Angel, at 16 Batty Street. The Lipsky case was simply bizarre. When Angel's body was found in bed, it was clear she had died through consuming nitric acid against her will. To the surprise of the investigators, Lipsky was found underneath the very same bed, 
He too had nitric acid stains around his mouth. He denied murder and claimed that two of his employees were extorting him and had killed Angel. He was arrested, tried and sentenced to hang. The case created some sympathy and many believe that the verdict was based more on anti-Semitism than due process. But even Queen Elizabeth registering her doubts. However, when Lipsky was allowed to speak to a rabbi, he admitted to the crime, though stating that his motive was theft and not rape, which had been suspected. Since then, the term Lipsky was used to abuse Jewish residents, so the broad-shouldered man was a local, and you'd assume not Jewish. Either that, or it was the other man's name, and he was calling for assistance. In any case, according to Abilene, there was no one called Lipsky in that area in September 1888. A little later, a man called Louis Deemschutz drove his pony and cart down Commercial Road. He had been to Crystal Palace and was keen to get home through the rain. As he approached the junction of Burner Street and Commercial Road, he saw the clock in the window of Harris's tobacconists. That building still survives today, incidentally. The clock read 1am. He turned down Burner Street and guided his pony through the gates of Duckfield Yard. As he attempted to park next to the club, the pony lurched away, clearly disturbed. Deemschutz climbed down to see what the problem was. It was black as pitch in the yard, but he was able to make out an object on the ground. He poked it with his whip, and it failed to move. He lit a match, and found it to be a woman. He went indoors to tell his wife and a few others. He could not tell if the woman was dead, or merely drunk, just as Charles Lechmere had done in Books Row a month earlier. They went outside with a candle and found the body of Elizabeth Stride. Her throat had been cut, and cut recently. There was still blood pouring from the wound. Morris Eagle ran up Burner Street towards Commercial Road, shouting police. Mrs Mortimer heard the mayhem and believed it to be a row. William Marshall, much further down Burner Street, also heard the cries. Reserve Police Constable Albert Collins and Police Constable Henry Lamb were found and brought back to view the body. Collins was then sent to 100 Commercial Road to find Dr Frederick William Blackwell. When he arrived, Lamb gave the order to shut up the gates so nobody could leave. He searched the premises and examined every bystander's hand for bloodstains. Blackwell observed, The deceased was lying on her left side obliquely across the passage, her face looking towards the right wall. Her legs were drawn up, her feet close against the wall of the right side of the passage. Her head was resting beyond the carriage wheel rut, the neck lying over the rut. Her feet were three yards from the gateway. Her dress was unfastened at the neck. The neck and chest were quite warm, as were also the legs, and the face was slightly warm. The hands were cold. The right hand was open and on the chest, and was smeared with blood. The left hand, lying on the ground, was partially closed, and contained a small packet of cashews wrapped in tissue paper. There were no rings, nor marks of rings on her hands. The appearance of her face was quite placid. The mouth was slightly open. The deceased had around her neck a check silk scarf, the bow of which was turned to the left and pulled very tight. In the neck was a long incision which exactly corresponded with the lower border of the scarf. The border was slightly frayed, as if by a sharp knife. The incision in the neck was commenced on the left side, two and a half inches below the angle of the jaw, and almost in a direct line with it, nearly severing the vessels on that side, cutting the windpipe completely in two and terminating on the opposite side one and a half inches below the angle of the right jaw, but without severing the vessels on that side. The blood was running down the gutter and into the drain in the opposite direction of the feet. There was about a pound of clotted blood close by the body, and the stream all the way from there to the back door of the club. So there were no signs of asphyxiation before the throat was cut, and certainly no eviscerations. 
This all seems to be a little unripper-like. Was this then a ripper murder? It's been a discussion point for years, and there are strong cases on either side. Sir Melville McNaughton of Scotland Yard stated in 1894, in his famous memoranda, that The Whitechapel murderer had five victims, and five victims only. And though he was not in situ throughout the case, he had more information than modern-day commentators. While assaults and cases of domestic cruelty were common around Whitechapel, amongst Elizabeth's tribe possessions in Sidani, was a key to a padlock, as Michael Kidney was not averse to locking her up indoors. Murders in the street were not. Nor, for that matter, were throat cuttings. So a knife attack in the street, a matter of weeks after two in the last month, must automatically be considered amongst the horrors perpetrated by the newly named Ripper. But there was so much wrong with this murder. Serial killers are capable of changing their modus operandi, as we'll see later with the death of Mary Kelly. But this one seems too unusual. Firstly, there's the knife. Though the cut on Stride's throat was keen enough, it was done by a small blunt blade, and the Ripper preferred a long and very sharp knife, so much so that he used one less than an hour later. Nichols and Chapman had had their throats cut so deep that the head was nearly removed. Stride's less so. Then there's the location. Polly Nichols was killed in a quiet street, so quiet that they were not witnessed by anyone even before they entered Book's Row, while Chapman was lured into a yard away from the prying eyes of Hanbury Street residents on their way to work. The killer needed solitude for his work, and as there was no exit point from Duckfield's yard other than the gateway, it would be far too dangerous to remove organs from a body with only one method of escape. Let's also consider the witnesses. Not only were there several in the street, including one, possibly two, whom he'd abused, but Duffield's yard had dozens of people leaving it. True, it was very dark, but did he really intend to tear the poor woman open and hope passers-by would not notice? It all seems a bit of a stretch somehow. The common explanation is that it was Jack, but Deepshoot's pony and trap had disrupted him before he could get to work. There's a chance that he was still in the yard when Deepshoot prodded the corpse with his whip, hiding in the shadows and used the time needed to find his wife to make good his escape through the gateway. If that's the case, then maybe the footstep Mrs Mortimer heard was that of the murderer rather than the policeman. Neither Mrs Mortimer nor Schwartz were called to the inquest, though Schwartz was tracked down by the press. This was an extraordinary decision. Matthew Packer, who claimed to have sold grapes to the couple, became something of a star witness in the affair for the wrong reasons. Questioned at 9am the following morning, he said, No. I saw no one standing about, and neither did I see anyone go up to the yard. I never saw anything suspicious, or heard the slightest noise, and know nothing about the murder until I heard of it in the morning. That's that, then. Nope. A few days later, two private detectives searched Duffield's yard and found a grape stalk near the sewer pipe where the body had lain. They made the connection with Packer's employment, and took him to see the body in Golden Lane Mortuary. However, as a test, he witnessed Catherine Eddowes' body, whom he did not recognise. Two days later, Sergeant White, who had originally interviewed him, returned to the house only to be told by Rose Packer, his wife, that the two detectives had collected her husband and taken him to view Stride's body. Packer confirmed that he'd sold the grapes at around 11pm that night. Somewhat at odds with his original statement, and impossible, as at 11pm, Stride was just leaving the carpenter's arms. In any case, the detective claims to have taken away Packer in a cab to meet with no less a personage than Sir Charles Warren. A report was written about Packer's second statement, which read, 
On Saturday night, about 11pm, a young man from 25 to 30, about 5 foot 7 with long black coat buttoned up, soft felt hat, kind of Yankee hat, rather broad shoulders, rather quick in speaking, rough voice. I sold him half a pound of black grape for three shilling. A woman came up with him from back church end, the, the lower end of the street. She was dressed in a black frock and jacket, fur round the bottom of the jacket with black crepe bonnet. She was playing with a flower like a geranium, white outside, red inside. I identified the woman at the St George's Mortuary as the one I saw that night. They passed by as though they were going up Com Road, but instead of going up, they crossed to the other side of the road to the board school and were there for about half an hour till I should say 11.30, talking to one another. I then shut up my shutters. Before they passed over opposite to my shop, they waited near the club for a few minutes, apparently listening to the music. I saw no more of them after I shut up my shutters. I put the man down as a young clerk. He had a frock coat on, no gloves. He was about one and a half inch or two or three inches, a little higher than she was. He was not called to the inquest, and with good reason. Matthew Packalize. A few weeks later, he claimed that he'd seen the murder on Commercial Road, and was rendered insensible with fear. I suspect that Matthew liked the attention, and he wouldn't be the first person to embroider himself into his story. In any case, when the contents of Elizabeth's stomach was examined, it contained cheese, potatoes, and farinaceous powder, with no traits of grapes. Farinaceous means flour or starch, and is, in my view, the loveliest word in Ripper folklore. But let's go back to Duckfield's yard, and assume that Elizabeth's murderer was indeed Jack the Ripper. He had killed, but that was not enough. For reasons best known to himself, he wanted to slice open a victim and perform mutilations and or take a trophy with him. As the conditions were not ideal, he would have to try again, though it would prove trickier as there would be policemen swarming the streets by now. He had to be where there were rich pickings. Ten minutes away to the west of Commercial Road stands St Bottles Church, or to give it its full name, St Bottles would add Allgate and Holy Trinity Minories. Records of the church date back as far as 1115 AD, though it's believed to have been built at the time of the Norman Conquest. It still stands today, an incongruous sight being a Gothic church beneath skyscrapers of metal and glass. Though the church is easily accessible today, in 1888 it sat on an island surrounded by roadways such as Poundstitch and Allgate itself. As prostitutes could be arrested for as little as stopping on a street corner, the island meant that the unfortunates could circle the church without police intervention as long as they didn't stop, because they weren't breaking the law. No doubt to the chagrin of the clergy, it became known locally as the Church of Prostitutes. That side of Allgate isn't in the East End as such, as it falls within the City of London. Today you can spot the road barriers which bear the crest of the city up to Middlesex Street. Then they disappear as the area gives way to Greater London. Hence Allgate Tube Station is in the City of London, while Allgate East Tube, a couple of minutes walk away, is not. When the murderer passed across Houndsditch, he had walked from the jurisdiction of the Metropolitan Police and into the City of London Police Territory. It's for this reason that Catherine Eddowes, a 46-year-old resident of Cooney's Lodging House at 55 Florentine Street, is by far the unluckiest of all his victims. Catherine was born in Wolverhampton in 1842 to George Eddowes and Catherine Evans. The family would eventually walk to London, though Catherine would return to Wolverhampton from time to time. When she was 21, she took up with Thomas Conway from the 18th Royal Irish. She had the initials TC tattooed on her left arm. They moved to Birmingham and sold books authored by Conway. They also produced what were known as gallow ballads, 
which they would sell to the audience at hangings. She even sold them at her own cousin's execution. The couple had three children, but split in 1881, and it was at that point that she moved to the Coonies in Plarendine Street. She then met a market worker named John Kelly. As with many of the East End poor, it was Eddowes and Kelly's practice to go hot-picking in the summer months. Annie Chapman had been talking about going to Kent the week she died, but Catherine made it to Hunton, though the trip was unsuccessful. It was on this excursion that she was given a pawn ticket for a shirt by a friend. It would be later used to identify her. Kelly returned to Cooney's on Friday the 28th of September, while Catherine went to the casual ward in Shoe Lane. The next day she met up with Kelly and pawned a pair of his boots when they were given enough money for breakfast. Still struggling for cash, she told Kelly that she would visit her daughter in Bermondsey to raise some money. This was probably a ruse, as she had no idea where Annie, her daughter, was at the time. Annie was tired of bailing her mother out, and didn't let her know where she lived. There are conflicting reports about Catherine's temperament and habits. The staff at Cooney's claimed that she would not often be outdoors after 10pm, and that her drinking wasn't excessive, save for the odd session. Kelly would later state that she was not a streetwalker. She was certainly drunk on the evening of Saturday the 29th of September, and was seen standing in the middle of the road, making a sound like a fire engine. When city policeman Louis Robinson came across her, she was dead drunk, surrounded by a crowd outside 29 Olgate High Street, mere metres from the City of London border. Robinson, along with PC George Simmons, took her to Bishopsgate Station to be arrested. Had she been found across Houndsditch in the Metropolitan Police District, she would have most likely been taken to Lehman Street Police Station. Upon her arrival at the station, she gave her name as Nothing and was put in a cell. It was the practice for the city police to keep their drunks until 1am, by which time they could not obtain more alcohol and cease to cause any further trouble. The Metropolitan Police preferred to sling them out when they were sober enough, probably because cell space was an issue. Had Catherine been in Lehman Street, she would have been released much earlier than 1am and therefore not ran into her murderer. As I say, the unluckiest of all the victims arrested mere metres from the apparent safety of the Metropolitan District. At 12.15am, she told PC Hutt that she was capable of looking after herself, but was kept in for another 40 minutes. She had now sobered up and gave her name as Mary Ann Kelly and her address as 6 Fashion Street. At 1am, the same time Louis Deemshutes was entering Duckfield's Yard, just over a mile away, she was released, informing Hutt, I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home. And it would serve you right. You have no right to get drunk. With the words, Good night, old cock. She left the station and curiously turned left rather than right where Florentine Street lay. She seemed to be heading back towards Allgate and possibly St. Bottle's Church. On the corner of Duke Street to Allgate stood the Imperial Club. At 1.35am, three men, Joseph Lavender, Joseph Levy and Harry Harris, left the club and talked briefly before heading home. On the other side of the road, they noticed Catherine talking to a man who was about 30 years old, 5 foot 7, and wore a salt and pepper jacket, a red kerchief, and a grey cloth peaked cap. Lavender later stated that he had the appearance of a sailor. Catherine had her hand on the man's chest, though not in a defensive manner. Levy said to Harris, Look there, I don't like going home by myself when they see those characters about. This, coupled with the fact that he refused to give any information at the inquest, has led people to believe that he may have recognised or even known the man. But this is largely speculation. At 1.40am, PC James Harvey walked past Church Passage, which leads into Mitre Square, though his beat didn't include entering it. 
he heard and saw nothing untoward, though the Ripper was at work nearby. At 1.44am, PC Edward Watkins entered Mitre Square and shone his lamp into the four corners. In the southwest corner, he found the bloodied corpse of Catherine Eddowes. She looked, as he said, Like she'd been ripped up, like a pig in the market. Side note. You may have noticed that we took the decision not to show the autopsy pictures. The images of Tabram, Nichols, Chapman and Stride were of the face only, and used only purely as a means of establishing the identities of the women. But there are full images of the wounds inflicted on Catherine Eddowes, and later Mary Kelly. I urge anyone of a squeamish disposition not to Google them. Seriously, they're really horrific. I'm aware that this statement might make you more curious, as it did with my friend Serena. She now really wishes she hadn't looked further. Serena says, don't be like Serena. If Lavender and his friends had seen the murder with Eddowes at 1.35, the murderer would only have had nine minutes to persuade her into a pitch-black square, throttle her, cut her throat, remove her kidney and uterus, cut off her nose, and carry out the most delicate cuts on her cheeks. All in complete darkness. The night watchman of the Curly and Tong warehouse was George Morris, a retired policeman. He heard nothing and claimed that he would have easily heard a cry. A few days earlier, he told a friend that he wished the butcher would try his luck in Mitre Square, so he could give him a doing. He was cleaning the stairs when Watkins hammered on the door. Morris still had his old police whistle and raised the alarm, bringing PCs Harvey and Holland to the body. Dr Frederick Brown was called for, and he gave a very long statement, the more salient points being, I believe the wound in the throat was first inflicted. I believe she must have been lying on the ground. The wounds on the face and abdomen prove that they were inflicted by a sharp, pointed knife, and that in the abdomen, by one six inches or longer. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organ in the abdominal cavity, and the way of removing them. It required a great deal of medical knowledge to have removed the kidney, and to know where it was placed. The pass removed would be of no use for any professional purpose. I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time or he would not have nicked the lower eyelids. It would take at least five minutes. I cannot assign any reason for the parts being taken away. I feel sure that there was no struggle and believe it was the act of one person. The man had taken the left kidney and a large part of the uterus. Dr Brown was able to establish that the remaining kidney was bloodless, an indication of Bright's disease, a fact that will become relevant soon. Both the Metropolitan and City of London forces were now scouring the area. Roads were closed, but the killer obviously knew how to slip away. The dramas of the night were not yet over. At 2.55am, PC Albert Long was walking down Goulson Street, which was on the east end side of Olgate, about five to seven minutes walk away from Mitre Square. As he passed the doorway of 108 to 119 Wentworth dwellings, he spotted a piece of apron lying in the doorway. It was covered with blood, and, shall we say... Other bodily matter, I'm sure you can guess. At first, he suspected there was another body nearby, so he made a search of the area. He swore that the apron had not been there when he passed at 2.20am. What had the Ripper been doing between leaving Mitre Square at 1.44am and 2.55am, when there was only a small distance between the two sites? Long met another constable who informed of the Mitre Square atrocity. He told the man to stand guard and ensure that nobody left the building. He then took the apron to Commercial Street Police Station. It was later confirmed that it was the missing part of Catherine Eddowes' apron. The murderer had cut it off and cleaned his hands and knife in the doorway of Goulson Street before heading off. Incidentally, 
Had he been walking away from Mitre Square and down Goulson Street, he would have been heading towards Bell Lane and Crispin Street, and subsequently straight up to Dorset Street, Fashion Street and the Ten Bells. Had he turned right at the next junction, he would have been on Wentworth Street and onto Commercial Street, where the rookeries of Flower and Dean Street and Thrall Street lay close. The apron was not the only discovery made by P.C. Long. On the door jamb above the apron was a graffito written in chalk on black brickwork. It read, though versions differ, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. It's unclear what this could mean. The killer, if he is responsible for what became known as the Goulton Street graffito, either seems to be blaming the Jews for the murders, or is proud of them and his people, and that's if they refer to the murders at all, though the positioning of the apron, which Long saw first, may be a factor. Senior police officials came to the scene and discussed what to do at the message. The city police wanted the writing to be photographed, but that would have been waiting for a photographer to show up. It would soon be light, and Goulson Street being a market area, it still is, would be teeming with Jewish stallholders and Gentiles buying their wares. The Metropolitan Police said that they could not take the risk. Racial tensions were already high in the area, and a full-scale riot was more than possible. After all, this was not long after John Pizer was nearly lynched. Then, some recommended deleting the word Jews, but that would fail to disguise the context. Sir Charles Warren was already in the East End investigating the murders, and arrived at Goulson Street at 5am. Despite protests, he was of one mind, and told his juniors to scrub the wall clean. Did he destroy the greatest piece of evidence in the whole case? It may seem so, and would be unthinkable today, but I've got certain sympathies with him. Goulson Street was a predominantly Jewish area, and the criminal fraternities and gangs of White's Row and Dorset Street were only a handful of streets away. There were later accusations about Warren, claiming that he understood the message's true meaning, and that it concerned the Masons, of which he was a member. It's nonsense from start to finish, really. The man simply wanted to bring peace on a night which had already cost two lives. Elizabeth Stride was buried in the East London Cemetery at the expense of the undertaker, Mr Hawkes. Catherine Eddowes, two days later at the City of London Cemetery, her remains being not too far from Polly Nichols. Both graves now have a plaque. London awoke to the horror of the two murders. On the 1st of October, the Central News Agency received a postcard from Saucy Jackie, which boasted, Double event this time. The term double event became the covering title of the murders of Sunday the 30th of September 1888. Police were soon receiving daily missives from wannabe jacks. And now graffiti started too. 